the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Boy, lots to talk about tonight as we say good afternoon to you. Five after five o'clock here on this Tuesday, July 20th edition of Lifeline. Hope you're doing well. Boy, almost hard to know where to begin. House Democrats are attempting to try and essentially throw out the Hyde Amendment. Been on the books for nearly 28 years now. That um, has restrictions related to public funds going to privately performed abortions. And they'd like to see that part of legislation disappear. We'll talk about that with Brian Johnston from the National Right to Life Committee. Recall election coming to California, as you're probably aware, September the 14th. And of the 41 official candidates on a list released by the Secretary of State's office over the weekend, would you be surprised to find out that the most recognizable name of the group has been left off the official ballot, at least until now? Larry Elder's going to court over it. We'll find out why as we talk with Pete Peterson of the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. That plus a push, another layer stripped off of laws in California in a push by Senate Bill 357 to legalize sex trafficking. I, I know you think that I misspoke. Oh, no, not at all. We'll have details for you. Greg Burt from California Family Council joins us later on in tonight's program. So it's just a, a cornucopia of odd, weird, disappointing, bad, and horrific news. But we'll try to find some silver linings as we move our way through tonight's discourse. One of the issues that I want to start with first is a battle that is being enjoined across the country on an increasing basis. It centers on the topic of gender dysphoria. And now this push insisting that public school employees use pronouns that may entirely be scientifically inaccurate, but nevertheless essentially forcing teachers to either Go along or get along? Let's get details now. Brad Dacus joins us, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad, there's a sad tale to be told in relationship to what's happened to school teacher John Kluge. Tell us a bit about what's going on here and how is it even possible that a school teacher would lose his or her position simply because they refuse to join in the madness? Uh, yeah, it, it's really alarming. We, we're, we're talking here about actually there's two teachers and they are told that, uh, you know, that uh, they're being disciplined and then, and then uh, fired just this last Friday. And then what they did was nothing wrong in the classroom, nothing about their teaching and, and doing their job. Uh, what it was was that they had established a private website 
their own private uh, platform uh, to express their public policy uh, thoughts with regards to state and local and federal uh, laws and policies that would protect uh, teachers' ability to maintain their conscience and not require them to use a pronoun of a, of a student that would violate their conscience to affirm a lie, a deception. Uh, it's you know very reasonable. A lot of teachers have that kind of conscience. So that was one thing they advocated. The other thing they advocated was uh, that uh, parents be brought into the equation. So if a child says that they feel like they're the opposite gender and they want to be treated differently, as a matter of policy, they were recommending that parents be brought into the equation and, and uh, be a part of the process of how that child should be dealt with and how the parents were dealing with it so they wouldn't be dealing with it in a way that was different than how the parents were dealing with it. Very reasonable policies. And, of course, it also called for uh, compassion and respect for all students. Well, somehow the administration, Craig, found out about the school district administration, found out about their private expression off school time, off school, school grounds, and they fired them because they did not, their position did not comport with the radical left, leftist position of the LGBTQ movement. Uh, this is a terrible travesty of their First Amendment rights of free speech and, and conscience. Well, and what I understand from this story is it goes even deeper than that, that that essentially they're, they're compelling teachers that in the classroom they must use the preferred pronoun of an individual student without regard to how much confusion all of that may, may create, without regard to what the science says about all of it. And, and that we're even mm -hmm. having the debate in public schools with children under the age of 18, under the age of majority, I, I find not only dismaying, disheartening at so many levels, but the fact now that we're essentially insisting that uh, even your religious beliefs are not going to be respected because you have to be, I don't know, what is this, political correctness gone wild? I'm not exactly sure what it is, but the yeah. fact that you've got teachers now that are being told, essentially, um, you're going to have to either use the language that we, we prescribe that you use, and if you don't, you'll end up losing your job because you're, quote, creating tension by not being willing to play along with the game. You know, what's frightening right. about this is beyond the First Amendment right aspects to it, you also have an issue here where... If we were to have this dialogue amongst a group of reasoned people, they would look at this and say, well, how is that not child abuse to even engage in this kind of or entertain, <laughs> pardon me, this kind of behavior? Right. Gender identity is, for you is, a, is a mental condition. It's still a mental condition. It's no longer listed as a mental illness, uh, recently removed from the DMS-5 for the illness, but it's still a condition. And the, the fact is, um, that child could be getting counseling from a, a, a psychologist. The family could be engaged working with that counselor on the child's perhaps fluid uh, dysphoria that they have going back and forth. And it's absolutely insane and insensitive and irresponsible to compel teachers uh, without the knowledge of parents or anyone else involved in the child's life to start affirming a false uh, information, a false identity that statistically is very destructive. Um, a child who goes down and, and, and confirms that false identity, according to one Swedish study, has 19 times the risk of suicide. So this is, um, and there's other complications as well. So it's very inhumane. It violates fundamental rights and civil liberties. Uh, it violates the rights of parents. Um, 
And uh, these, these teachers had every right to communicate uh, their opinion on it. You know, teachers and people who work for the government do not shed their First Amendment rights as United States citizens because they work for the state and may not agree with the, the policies of the state or their, their local government. That is what makes the United States uh, so special as a country. We're not communist China, where you have to agree with the state if you work for the state. And it's very important that we protect these women and people just like them uh, working for the government to be able to express their thoughts and opinions. And also, uh, at the same time, uh, let's consider their opinions because they make good sense as a matter of policy and human rights. And moreover, you know, the, the, the level of ignorance, I, I, we live in a day and an age, and you know this better than I do, Counselor, where people like to tout um, selected quotes from the United States Constitution only when it befits them. And yet you have a case here where clearly where children ought to be taught the contents and the value and the importance of what's inside of our Constitution, what's inside of our Declaration of Independence. Um, and instead, sadly, we find out that oftentimes these administrators are the ones that know the least about it, even though they're charged with the responsibility of helping our children understand it. I mean, it's it's the classic case of, you know, let, let me show you how not to go about doing things correctly. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad, we appreciate the update and uh, continue to follow this story. It, it is shocking that essentially even a teacher that is not wanting to participate in this on religious belief grounds right. is essentially not allowed to do so. Right. And, and Craig, we have filed, we have already filed a lawsuit on their behalf, and we're going to litigate this always Supreme Court if necessary. We have PJI. Well, we certainly hope you do because it needs it, and we've got so much at risk here without standing and, and essentially drawing the proverbial line in the sand. Brad Dacus, again, with the Pacific Justice Institute. Information on the web at pacificjustice.org. 515 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. I made reference at the top of the program tonight to something called the Hyde Amendment. Been on the books for, my goodness, nearly 30 years now. And it has been the guardrail that at least to the degree that the law has any teeth has been able to reduce the number of taxpayer paid abortions in the country. I mean, there's multiple debates going on here. At the core, of course, is the 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 entire um, moral, ethical question of abortion at the core. That's foundational to this argument, to be sure. But then there's the other notion, the other question that's raised, and that is that if it's going to be legal, should we force taxpayers who fundamentally, at their core, on moral and religious grounds, object to any participation in the taking of life. Should their tax dollars be protected? And the Hyde Amendment has essentially done that, but that may change. Let's get an update now from Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, best-selling author, and the host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX. Hyde Amendment has been around, Brian, for almost 30 years. Tell us what's happening. Why is there a significant threat to it now? Yes, Greg, you're exactly right. And even Senator Biden, when he was a senator, he supported the Hyde Amendment. It's a very simple reason. It's one thing to say that you support abortion as a choice. 
It's another thing to say, now the federal government's going to pay for it and underwrite it. And that includes not just the actual procedure, giving money to the doctor with the blood on his gloves. This is the advertising, the infrastructure for Planned Parenthood. It's estimated that every year uh, that there's 60,000-plus lives that are saved every year, and that's according to more than 20 different peer-reviewed studies. And it's a very practical point. Whatever you pay for, you get more of. So this is a very important uh, sea change, you might say, even in the Democrat Party. I want to point out there's many Democrats. Again, there's a lot of Democrats who don't fully understand what's happening with the Democrat Party. But more to the point, there's many Democrats who do self-identify as pro-life. And they don't go for all of this. And again, one example, Joe Biden. Now, Joe Biden thought there should be some some kind of restriction on this, which is what the Hyde Amendment provided. But this year now, the Democrat Party, we're seeing a radicalization, and that's being pushed through. This will now go across to the Senate. And it's critically important that even if you have a Democrat Congress member, let them know that, you know, the Democrats didn't do this before that there's a lot of pro-life Democrats. In fact, polling is pretty consistent that the average American doesn't support government funding of abortion, even those who identify as pro-choice. 71% of Americans do not favor the funding of abortion. And that includes a lot of Democrats. So what we're looking at is a dramatic push to expand the abortion industry and use our money to do that. And sadly, Brian, to your point, so much of this is basically the outcome of a very long, steadfast propaganda campaign. I think you're right. I mean, I know plenty of Democrats that are staunchly anti-abortion. I don't necessarily see this as a Republican or a Democrat issue. It's a moral issue. It's certainly a question of one's beliefs and values about the origins of life. And, you know, is is a baby a blob or is a baby created in God's image? All of these questions. But, but I think we've been slowly over the years brainwashed and programmed to think that, oh, yeah, this is a Democrat idea. And therefore, um, it, it needs to be promoted by the Democrat Party. And, and sadly, um, it runs contrary into the, the general position of most Americans that they are, in fact, against abortion. And at the very least, are steadfastly against the idea of taxpayer-funded abortion. And yet this misinformation campaign has been largely successful. Yes, and it's important to recognize that you do have a voice. I think with the current media sea change, it's just assumed, well, this is how it is. There are certain ideas that are now newly woke, and we're going to change things, and you just shut up about it. And that's a very bad premise to accept. We need to continue to let our representatives know. And again, even if you are, you know, there's many, we've talked about it before, many Catholics have remained registered Democrats. I know quite a few. And it's more out of tradition. But they're very, very pro-life, and they don't want this to be happening. So it's important to pick up your phone, call your member of Congress, let them know that you want the Hyde Amendment to continue. And it's been there for decades, decades. 
and it's something that that has actually protected lives over the years. Again, uh, it's been estimated over the years more than 2.4 million lives have been allowed to come into the world, and they're good people. You know, none of those people should have been killed. And there's a problem with how we view this idea of choice, and we know that it's a euphemism. We know what we're talking about. This is a unique human being. Science has said that. This unique human being has never before existed and will never again exist. We have our lives as a gift from God. So this is an important issue, and the federal government is changing direction dramatically. So that measure is is in the House right now, and they do have the votes out of the whole Appropriations Committee. The whole committee, there was basically 33 members that were Democrat, 32 voted to strip out the Hyde Amendment, only one Democrat. So this is a very strong push by a, a political party that has made a conscious decision to go all in. They're going all in on unlimited abortion. This is, of course, going to require the cooperation by the United States Senate, and I would hope that under uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, this thing will be DOA. Do you think that will be the case? Well, it's going to be tough. I think, again, we're looking at two members of the Senate, um, uh, Senator, Senator Manchin of West Virginia, and then in Arizona, uh, her name excuse me, but uh, these are the two Democrats that actually for all intents and purposes, have not gone full woke, if I could use that term, uh, and are kind of the old school Democrats that that are looking at at a more moderate view of, of how the government should function. They're the ones that are going to decide. Uh, obviously, Mitch McConnell is going to fight hard, but uh, without the votes, and that's why it's critically important to realize your voting and your voice at election time and your voice when policy comes up. You can make a difference. Every life matters, including yours. So you can call your member of Congress. You can influence them. And even if they vote against you, just let them know, well, you're voting against what I think is right. Now they have to weigh that out. Uh, the map is going to change, by the way, next year. So the, their congressional districts are going to, they don't know what's ahead. So we need to not surrender, not give in, and I think I think Mitch McConnell is going to stand strong. Uh, but it, it is going to depend on uh, those critical swing votes, particularly Senator Manchin. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Got a new book out, by the way. It's called The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. Now available through Amazon.com. You can also go deeper on these topics on his broadcast, Saturday mornings at 11, called Life Matters. That's Life Matters with Brian Johnston. More information available on the web, too, at CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. Make it a point to tune in this Saturday morning at 11 o'clock for Life Matters with Brian Johnston. All right, here at 5.30, we're going to get you an update on traffic. When we come back, the race to repeal or to remove the governor and the oddity of one of the best-known names that's intending to run from governor that's not yet certified as a candidate and why. Pete Peterson with Pepperdine University joins us next as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In September, second to Tuesday of the month, to be precise, the 14th, California voters will have the second opportunity in our lifetime to go to the polls and decide whether or not to keep our current governor or to make a change. Plenty of reasons why perhaps a consideration of this change are before Californians on September the 14th. And as the Secretary of State's office released the official list of candidates over the weekend, interestingly enough... Probably the best-known candidate on the list wasn't, in fact, on the list. We're going to find out what this is all about, get some insights into even the likelihood of this taking place in California for a second time, that meaning successfully recalling the governor as we did with Gray Davis a number of years ago. Joining me now is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University, Pete Peterson. Pete, it's always great to have you on the program. And great to be back with you, Craig. And I have to tell you, I I was a little bit shocked. I happened to be at home uh, sitting in front of the computer on a Sunday evening and thought I would look at a little bit of uh, email and some news and took in the fact that the Secretary of State had released the official list of 41 qualified candidates that will be on the ballot. Two important questions uh, before voters on September the 14th. A, should, Gray, uh, sorry, <laughs> should uh, Gavin Newsom be recalled? And if so... Then B, who should replace him? The one name I was expecting to see on the list is my colleague, who's not on the list, oddly enough. That, of course, is conservative radio talk show host Larry Elder, who arguably amongst the field of candidates is probably one of the better known names, Olympian star Jenner notwithstanding. Give us some insights as to how is it and is it convenient that somehow at the last minute his name has not wound up on the list? And I understand that um, as recent as yesterday, uh, Larry has been in uh, in court now in Sacramento County Superior Court uh, to file a lawsuit against the Secretary of State. Tell us what's going on here. That's right, Craig. And it's actually one of uh, two, I think, significant court challenges by uh, two candidates for the recall. Of course, uh, Larry's is the most prominent. Uh, what's What we're hearing out of the Secretary of State's office, to the degree we're hearing anything, is that uh, there seems to be a uh, dispute about some of the tax records uh, that uh, candidate Elder had submitted along with his various other forms. As a candidate for governor, uh, there are some required financial disclosures uh, that need to happen as part of that application. And what the office, uh, Secretary of State's office, is saying is that some of those forms either were not filled out uh, completely or maybe uh, had uh, released too much information. I know that's actually the argument of uh, Larry's campaign is that actually in some ways they've given more information than was originally asked for and they can't find record of a candidacy being stopped uh, over this reason and so that's why he's in uh, the Sacramento County Courthouse uh, as you said uh, fighting this. So that that case is certainly not closed, um, but we should know the disposition of it uh, within the next week. The other case involves uh, San Diego, former San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer, who has been leading in most of the 
the polls, at least among Republican candidates. And the Secretary of State's office disallowed his uh, proposal for a ballot designation. That is the, the title that goes underneath your name on the ballot. Uh, mayor Faulkner wanted to put simply that he was a former mayor of San Diego and the secretary of state's office disallowed that, uh, for reasons that are not very clear. And suffice it to say, uh, mayor Faulkner and his team are also in the courts, uh, looking to have that decision overturned in both cases, uh, decisions made by the secretary of state's office are arguably hurting, uh, leading Republican candidates. And seem to have a degree of um, arbitrariness to to both of them. Now, let's talk a bit about the scenario that Larry Elder is facing. Uh, you mentioned about the release of his taxes. And I've read that there's this argument that, well, some things that were supposed to be redacted weren't and others that weren't right. were. Uh, But let's kind of dial down to the motivation behind all of this. This is relatively a a recently new requirement. In fact, when Gavin Newsom ran for office three, four years ago, it was not a requirement. This is something that Democrats in California basically put on the books in an effort to try and prevent Donald Trump, ironically enough, from qualifying uh, to be on the California presidential or the general election ballot rather last november ironically that aspect was struck down by a court of law but it left stand the requirement for gubernatorial candidates to release five years worth of their tax records now i understand from what larry elder has said to the press that he provided more than 200 pages over the course of this five-year disclosure of his tax records and for the secretary of state's office to disqualify a candidate because something was not not properly redacted, just Mm -hmm. seems to be, how should I put this politely, a bit convenient? It's hard to disagree with that perspective, uh, Craig. I I think you're right. I think it seems very convenient that, um, you know, it's one of those things that it will remain to be seen whether we are going to uh, approach this from the letter or the intent of the law. Obviously, the intent of the law was to attempt to provide some transparency as to the financial dealings of candidates for the highest office in California. And I don't think there's anyone who would doubt that what Larry submitted does, in fact, accomplish that. It does provide the necessary grounding and background uh, that if one wanted to explore or research um, the financial dealings going back five years of a, a gubernatorial candidate, that what Larry has submitted would certainly suffice. Um, but obviously, the Secretary of State's office has decided differently. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately in some ways, uh, that's why we have courts. And, uh, and Larry's team is certainly doing its best to argue its case. And it sounds as if that the judges are going to have to 
weigh in with a ruling fairly quickly here because the one challenge, of course, is all of these ballots need to be printed. They need to be provided to California right. residences in a timely enough fashion ahead of the September the 14th election. And even to the point of um, former San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer's um, concerns. I mean, you know, if, if your best known role is as the mayor of San Diego, it seems to me totally appropriate to put down former mayor of San Diego. Now, if he had requested that the title be, you know, former mayor of San Diego and the most brilliant politician to ever <laughs> walk the streets of San Diego, then maybe, just maybe, maybe the Secretary of State would have a point. It, it just, you know... Given the consternation over the electoral process in our country since November of last year, it just seems as if the Secretary of State here is majoring on some pretty ridiculous minors calling into question whether or not there is political motivation behind all of this. And I, I return, if I may politely do so, Pete, to my opening statement that uh, of the list of 41 official candidates, and I guess we can, thankful, be, can be thankful it's 41 and not 135, That's right. as it was, was when Gray Davis faced recall That's election right. um, 20 years ago. But I, I just find it interesting that of the best known names on the list, and probably generally considered to be most qualified that the, the two people at the top of the list are fighting the Secretary of State over minor things like titles or whether or not you turned in the proper tax return information. No, I think that's very fair, and you're so right to point out the timeliness of this. You know, this will not stand weeks in the courts. This is going to have to be decided upon uh, really within the next week uh, because, as you say, it's not just about the... September 14th uh, election day. It is about printing ballots uh, that will be mailed out to voters uh, in a timely enough fashion um, that will allow voters to both understand, read, get to know the candidates a bit, formulate an opinion, uh, make that opinion and that decision, uh, or those two decisions, I should say, and, uh, and mail in that vote for those that decide to vote by mail. In your opinion, and I realize you're not a constitutional lawyer, but you are an expert when it comes to public policy. So let me ask a question to, to a broader extent here, Pete, in the case of my colleague Larry Elder. Um, how much of a brouhaha could all of this develop into if a judge does not weigh in in a timely fashion, his name does not show up on the official ballot uh, when they go to the press. I understand that it needs to be uh, first um, certified by the Secretary of State's office as soon as tomorrow. So time is of the essence here. Um, what's your sense in terms of how big of a, a brawl could this devolve into if Larry Elder is denied the ability to have his name on the list of gubernatorial candidates when from every, every other point he fully qualifies? No, I think it really could be a major story. Um, you know, one of the important points about Larry's candidacy is, as you say, uh, he is best known across the state, just given his uh, media presence, by voters who are most likely to be engaged in the recall election. You know, one of the things that I, I've been asked occasionally is uh, since, you know, uh, I know Mayor Faulkner, he, he's a visiting professor here, uh, whether Larry's candidacy 
uh, hurts the mayors. And and my perspective on this is that the the more good Republican candidates in the recall, the better, uh, because nothing matters unless the answer to that first question, those results on whether to recall the governor or not, is answered um, by 50 percent plus one. And so what's necessary to do that is to make sure that you've got some good alternatives uh, who are running and different alternatives will draw different groups of voters. And it's extremely important, I think, for the broader cause for those of us who are concerned with the current governor's uh, leadership or or lack thereof, particularly in this last year, um, that that voters have the maximum number of choices uh, when it comes to a decision like this. Yeah, and I'm, you know, and I realize that this is more personal opinion than anything else, but looking at the list that was produced of those candidates who do qualify in the mind of the Secretary of State's office, and I, and I, I realize this might be a matter of semantics here, but looking at some of them, I'm thinking this is purely a political a grandstanding uh, yes. promotional stunt. There's no substance to this candidacy whatsoever. And and if any of you wish to, you know, look up the websites of some of these folks, including one that's in the entertainment business, using the term loosely, you'll see yes. that this is nothing more than an, an attempt to grab attention, not legitimately concerned about the future of California, nor trying to bring legitimate answers to many of California's significant problems to the table in the September the 14th recall election. And you're right, at the end of the day, uh, Californians, I think, deserve to have as many qualified candidates put before them as possible, and then at the ballot box, you decide. It'll be interesting to see how all this plays out. And as you point out, Pete Peterson, uh, the the clock is ticking. Pete Peterson, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. More information, by the way, if you're interested in getting involved in the world of public policy, shaping policy, and um, leading California into a healthier direction, then we urge you to get more information. You can check out the uh, Public Policy Division of Pepperdine at publicpolicy.pepperdine.com. Edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Our thanks to Pete Peterson, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. 546 on the clock. Let's get you an update on traffic. This report is sponsored by ExpressPros.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. And uh, frequent listeners to the program know that down through the years, we've had several conversations with Vanessa Russell, who was the host of Love Never Fails here on KFAX Radio. Her ministry largely focuses on women that have been victims of, well, everything from sex trafficking to uh, involved in prostitution. And if you study the subject with any degree of, of seriousness, Uh, Most experts, like Vanessa Russell, will tell you the overwhelming number of women that are involved in so-called sex trade are not there willingly, and a significant proportion of them are actually pulled into all of this as essentially being trafficked. And so understanding the kind of risk that these women face 
the kind of horror that they deal with on a day-to-day basis and their awkward uh, situation that they find themselves in often not having a means of escape, you would think, you would think that California law would want to do everything possible to not only protect these women but to find and to prosecute the people responsible for pulling them into prostitution. But apparently that's not the case as demonstrated by something quite dangerous called Senate Bill 357. And here to get more information is Greg Burt. Greg is the Director of Capital Engagement with California Family Council. And Greg, my my argument goes back probably 20 years when Terrence Hallinan was the District Attorney of San Francisco and steadfastly refused to prosecute sex crimes of any sort whatsoever, which then just made the opportunity for people to take advantage of others through sex trafficking become more rampant throughout the city. And it almost seems as if this takes it to a whole new level. And sadly, but not shockingly, one of the instigators of all of this is San Francisco Senator Scott Wiener, tell us what's going on with this dangerous Senate Bill 357. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I appreciate you having me on, Craig. Um, this is another bill, a dangerous bill, proposed by uh, Senator Scott Wiener out of San Francisco. And if you uh, read anything about what he's been up to, um, he ultimately wants to legalize prostitution, uh, which he calls sex work, wants to make sure sex workers are treated with respect. And so... The first uh, bill he's introducing on that quest is to um, it's, it's uh, SB three five seven, and what it does is it eliminates the police's ability to make an arrest for a crime called loitering in public place with the intent to commit prostitution. So, uh, if, if there is a street corner, and we know of all these street corners in every big city, usually in really poor areas, there's a street corner that uh, prostitutes will hang out and people will pull up and you know what's happening, right? And it's really hard to, the only way you can actually charge someone, um, the police can charge someone with uh, prostitution, you actually have to witness the solicitation. So you got to be close enough so you can hear uh, sex being exchanged for money. So the only way police can really catch you is that they're pretending to be a prostitute or they're pretending to be a buyer, right? Um, now, the other way uh, that they've used and tried to control uh, open prostitution on the streets is this particular law where people are loitering around dressed in, uh, you know, in very skimpy clothes and guys are pulling up and people are talking to them. Everybody knows what's happening. Everybody knows where to go and what corners this is happening at. Police can actually make an arrest um, the individuals involved in the trafficking or the, uh, the prostitution are taken down, given a ticket, it actually provides an opportunity to separate the prostitute from the, the pimp or the trafficker who is always standing nearby watching, right? And you separate them like this. You actually give uh, women an opportunity to make a decision. Do I want to go back out on the streets or do I want to help get it, help in, and find freedom from what I've been trapped in. And what you just said at the very beginning, uh, that most people involved in this trade are being sex trafficked, that's exactly what one of the witnesses that we brought in to testify against this bill last week, uh, he is the uh, founder of uh, 
Magdalene Hope. It's a anti-trafficking organization in Bakersfield. And he says that he has helped over 10,000, he's outreached to over 10,000 women and other individuals involved in prostitution in California over the last 10 years. And 7 out of 10 are trafficked. Um, and uh, he thinks this is going to be a disaster. It, it makes human trafficking easier for the trafficker, right? You, and the, the whole idea of doing this, I think, well, we, we're being compassionate towards those who are trapped, but what? But by eliminating the law that allows police to stop it, right, and to make it hard for it to happen, uh, you're making women more vulnerable. It's less risky for pro, uh to put out girls on a street corner if they know the police can't do anything about it. You know, the irony behind all of this, Greg, is the fact that, you know, we're, we're in a day and an age when there's heightened awareness uh, over uh, abuse, misbehavior. The, the Me Too movement has called forward a lot of questions uh, pertaining to the, the way men, women are, are poorly treated as sex objects. And, and while all of that, perhaps at varying degrees, are, are, are up for question and debate, and, and, and that continues to this day, I think most thinking people can logically conclude that sex trafficking is not a good idea, that it is seldom, if ever, a voluntary choice by the women that are involved in it, and that it, this is not trying to criminalize the behavior to punish them, but that these can often be used as tools to help women get out of that lifestyle, one that they're often forced into. And so instead to see a member of the United States Senate advocating this and saying, no, 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 we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to punish for that. We're going to take that tool away from the police departments and essentially um, do what we can to almost sentence women to uh, a life of this because we're removing one of the most effective tools uh, that, that law enforcement has. What is the chance of this bit of nonsense passing. I understand that it's, it's, it's made its way through the Assembly Public Safety Committee along party lines. Where does it go from here? And most importantly, Greg, what can we be doing as California voters and citizens to stop it? Well, the bill has already gone through the Senate. It has already gone through uh, the committee, the policy committee hearing in the Assembly, and now it's on the appropriations and then the floor. So it is, we are at the end of the process. So the fact that this bill has got uh, this far uh, with Democrats all voting for it does not bode well for us uh, defeating it. Sadly, what is enabling the uh, Democrats uh, in this case to uh, push this bill is there is one of the major anti-trafficking organizations here in California called CAST, or Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking, is actually for the bill. And so that gives legislators cover. This is one of the most um, well-financed. Uh, uh, government gives this organization lots of uh, grants and money to fight trafficking. But once they are now on board, um, and there's this, I don't think people realize, there is this push among some anti-trafficking groups to think the best way to help the women who are being trafficked is to no longer... Uh, have prostitution to be uh, illegal, to legalize sex work, and that's somehow going to, you know, uh, to be the answer. Um, but what's going to happen is simply going to enable more, it's 
going to increase the um, uh, the number of people actually being trafficked because it's going to be easier. I mean, tra- trafficking is overtaking drug uh, dealing, right? It is a it is a very lucrative uh, uh, lucrative profession to be in, right? It's more lucrative than drugs because these women are sold over and over. Um, where with drugs, you have to buy drugs to sell drugs. And so that's what we, we were being told. And legalization is, is, is going to be a disaster. Um, and so these, uh, these, uh, these groups out there who are fighting trafficking, you have to realize you, to not be sucked into what the ACLU and Equality California are trying to persuade everybody is that, you know, if we treated, if we made, if we normalized selling sex, then this would, this would be good for women and families and society. Um, and it's just, it is not true. Yeah, it, it, it just, it defies logic at so many levels and, and how this is not considered by the women of our state to be absolute outright abuse. Um, you know, if they don't see it that way, they need to see it that way. This is a very, very dangerous bill. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe again, proof positive, hearkening back to our conversation with Pete Peterson a couple of moments ago, why we need to look at the, the California governor um, recall this September, because we need to have a governor that's also willing to say enough is enough and pull out the veto pen from time to time. And I can guarantee you, if this makes its way through the California state legislature, uh, it'll be on the governor's desk and he will sign this thing in a new york minute greg burt we appreciate the update on this story more information available on the web at californiafamily.org that's californiafamily.org greg burt director of capital engagement for the california family council six o'clock from kfax let's get you an update on traffic